This is Pitch Tech Asia. We are in the Asia Tech Podcast Studio. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Paul Guillermo. Did yes. I get it right? Yeah, very well. Paul, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. And um, we live, I know this is Asia Tech Podcast. A lot of what crosses our table on a daily basis is technology. Mm -hmm. And often that technology is out there in the ether. So we see a lot of blockchain, for example. But today, we're going to talk about touchy-feely stuff we can actually see, make, and feel. We're going to talk about spare parts. Mm -hmm. And you've got a bag of spare parts yeah, here. Is that, is that the point? I want to, to differentiate myself by coming with actual <laughs> physical stuff, you know what I mean? Oh, exactly. And, and if you're listening, if you're not watching this on the video, if you're listening on the podcast, if you just got audio, we'll have to describe what you're doing and what you're yeah. pulling out of the bag. <laughs> Um, well, maybe we can start. Let's just pull something out of the bag. Can you produce from your bag of tricks <laughs> one of your spare parts and tell so me? I am, I am, I'm going to give it to you, actually. <laughs> um, do, I, do I have to guess it? It looks like, and I'm going to guess, Yeah. Right, it looks like something out of a washing machine. Absolutely. Am I? Am I yeah, right? I'm right. I'm right. right. <laughs> All right. So it's it, actually um, a, f a filter holder for a washing machine. Oh, there you go. That, <laughs> so everybody, that wasn't the setup. That was completely random. So so I, I took out one one that's pretty much not, uh, very nice, especially on the surface finish. Right. And that, that kind of stuff, you just don't know whether it's 3D printing or not. So right. Okay. So why, why why this? Why do we need to see this? Why is this a part that needs to be printed? Um, basically, because um, manufacturers of home appliances like um, the Whirlpool, Mydia, yeah. all these companies, they have so many parts to manage in inventory in after sales that basically they have stock out all the time. So yeah. when they have to call, they are stuck and they are not able to deliver to their customers. So yeah. the interest of being able to 3D print is that we can 3D print on the spot straight away and locally so that we can deliver the part much, much faster than conventional uh, manufacturing process. For the manufacturer or for the consumer? For the manufacturer. And so they can sell it to the consumer. Absolutely. Say, so I had this problem recently. I bought a blender, mm -hmm. you know, for fruit juice and the blender was about $40 and the the top that sits on the blender, mm -hmm. I don't know what that's called, but let's say it's the glass, but it's plastic, right? Yep. You put your juice in it and you blend it. Mm -hmm. The cover. The, yeah, that broke. Mm -hmm. But I went back to the manufacturer and I said, look, I need another part. And they didn't sell it on their website, but the actual part was about $30. And yeah. I just thought, well, I'll just go and buy a new blender. It just yeah. seems pointless. That seems to be a problem all over. There are websites that sell these parts, but mm -hmm. they're very expensive, aren't they? That's right, and especially the case for small appliances like this. But when right. you come to a dishwasher or fridge, you don't want to replace a $600 fridge because of a $30 right, part. So exactly. you have a bit more room to repair. And most of that are apart from dishwasher, fridge, or all the biggest appliances because small appliances makes it much difficult to repair due to the economical constraint itself. Yeah, and I'm not really going to solve that. And we are more solving the problems of... Uh, every time you are calling the repairman and, uh, and the guy is telling you, yeah, yeah, I need to order the parts, but uh, I, I don't have it and I'm going right. to wait for three three weeks or three months even to get it. Or simply, oh, sorry, the, the, the part is phased out. Uh, I just cannot repair. You have to rebuy another one. Yeah, uh, Which happens a lot, actually. It's like uh, working with the OEM themselves. It's about 10% of the parts that are ordered by customers. They are not able to to fulfill the demand yeah. straight away. Yeah. Because the parts are not at the right place at the right time, whatever the reason is. It's a reason of obsolescence or or, or, or shortages or stock out due to supply chain issues or mm. um, 
plenty of things that happens that makes it just not available. So right. that's that's kind of stuff we are we are solving here. And if you can't get a part, you're screwed, right? There's there's no second option, is it? It's not like no, you can, no, that it's that, a six hundred dollar well, dishwasher. Problem, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what have you got in your bag? What what are commonly requested parts? Oh, um, are very common being knobs. <laughs> yeah, stupid. That just looks. <laughs> but they have so many of them. So maybe you can reach God. Maybe you can, you can hold it up to the camera there. You can show us yeah. show us some of your knobs. Okay, <laughs> let's uh, have a look. So we got here. I'm I'm showing this one up. I mean, I got plenty. But of that seems it. something like a really basic thing, right? But yeah, I, if for example that what was that from? That machine? I don't know. Honestly. You don't know. I, I really don't know. It looks like it might be but it's, from um, usually it's a cooker. Or, yeah, um, I think it's a slow cooker or something like that. It's something that might turn, you yeah. know, like tick round like on a timer. So I got um, like a coupler. That that would be a coupler from your um, from your mixer or blender. Uh, this kind of stuff. That's what I needed. One this, of that fits this one probably everyone will recognize. That you have that in your washing machine. Washing machine, yeah. I, I, no one really knows how, to do, how is it used for. Yeah, what no, is it used for? I, I, I really never, definitely don't know why. Can we somebody have this tell part. me what number one and number two are? Which, which is the. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Which yeah, is the and, powder and which is the. Uh, don't ask me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not designing the machines themselves. Right, okay. Um, Okay, or some other stuff like yeah, but that will that will be an old part that you have in old uh, washing machines. Yeah, as well. yeah. And this is basically when you're doing the programming stuff. Uh, uh -huh. that, that was a uh, the old uh, manual programming uh, parts. If that breaks, you're screwed. Yeah, because you're never gonna find that again. And um, if you're a manufacturer, usually you phase out these parts simply because uh, your supplier were, were producing that with plastic injection, and the minimum order quantity to produce that is like uh, I need to have. 10,000 or 100,000 to make right. it economical, while uh, they have demands between 50, 100, 200 per year eventually. And on very, very old parts like this, even less than that. Yeah. So, I mean, treat me like I'm stupid because I am in, the, I'm not an engineer or understand how the manufacturing process works. But it, don't manufacturers have warehouses with like hundreds of thousands of parts in them? Yeah. So, why, why do we then need this? What's the problem? So, uh, again, the problem is when you are a manufacturer or spare part manager at a manufacturer, you are doing trade-off between having a very, very huge inventory. No, normally, right. uh, the, the, the one I mentioned, like Whirlpool, they have $100 million value of inventory in right. the US. Yeah. And, um, and, and if they want to be able to deliver everything everywhere, they have to triple or multiply by four or five uh, this level of inventory, which costs them a lot of money. Right, because this means that's five hundred million dollars that are just stuck and doing nothing. Yeah, and that's a cost of money. And it can't be. Can it ever make it profitable? Can it ever be a profitable business for a manufacturer? Yeah, yes, but most of the time it's not. Right. So they've got I, one guy in a warehouse and yeah. he's serving the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, either either they have very very huge cost of inventory, either they have low low service level. Yeah, and they they just cannot manage to have both. Yeah. So we basically solve the problem for especially what we call long tail. So basically when you are in after sales, you have like 10% of the parts that will be that will break a lot and that they fulfill very well. Mm. And they have inventory that is not sleeping, what we call, uh, meaning that the parts are, are, are coming and, and getting out very often. So it does not cost them too much in inventory, but all the remainings, like the 90 plus percent of them are, are, very, uh, are sold very, very few uh, times per mm. year so but they have to have volumes they have to have inventory to to be able to cover it and and when you have lower volumes you have more 
variations over the demand over the year. So you you predict you don't predict as well, right. and because you don't predict well, you have shortages. And um, so for them, the, really, we worked on two aspects. One is increasing the service level, and the other one is decreasing their cost of inventory. So ultimately, what we want to do is to take off all this ninety percent of the parts out from their warehouse, right. so that we produce everything on demand and it doesn't cost them any money. Yeah. Exactly, it must be a huge headache cost-wise for them. Yeah, yeah. In terms and of actually, it. actually, it's like uh, something like thirty percent depreciation of uh, of the the value yeah. of the inventory per year. Right, and like you say, you got you got no, you can't yeah. predict it. Like I don't know if I'm going to sh- sell these like blender parts because you know I have to keep ten thousand of them, and yeah. then suddenly that blender goes out of production. Yeah, you don't know how many people around the world still have those parts Absolutely. or need them. Right. Mm. Okay, let's talk about spare parts three D. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're here to talk about. I've got your pitch deck, so we can jump back in. Um, we won't go through the whole pitch deck, but maybe we can start by looking at the size of the market. You've already kind of identified. Um, how big is this market? So actually, I'm, I've, and we've been discussing home appliance, huh? right. uh, but, and I, I'm really focusing at the home appliance market at the moment, but at the same time, we're opening on some other markets. Uh, which are more related to Singapore as well. Hmm. Um, the home appliance market itself for for the for the spare parts is about nine billion dollar altogether. And uh, what we know we can do right now is about five percent of that, knowing that the day we start really to work on the long tail, so on to digitalizing the entire warehouse, we are talking about thirty uh, percent of that. Right. So it's it's this is uh, itself it's it's pretty big, uh, knowing that we have kind of a Right now, what we are doing for all the obsolescence supply shortages problematics, or so the service level, uh, the problem that they don't have the part at the right time, um, we can afford to have parts that are much more costly than conventional manufacturing. When it comes to the next phase, so the, basically the digitalization of the inventory, we have to be very, very close to the cost of original manufacturing, which mm-hmm. we are not there yet in terms of uh, 3D printing production. So. Um, so right now we are evaluating that as a as a niche of a few hundred millions, like mm. four hundred million, something like this. Um, the, but the interesting thing is that you have the same problematics in every physical product. So whether you are doing uh, a car, uh, a, a boat, uh, an aircraft, uh, an industrial machine. Um, everything has pairs, and it's always a headache for the manufacturers to yeah. use uh, to to get the pair. So, we are already working with some companies also in the maritime market. All right, well, we've got the, some of your case studies. Yeah. we'll flash them up in a minute. We'll get, we'll sure. get to those. Yeah. I mean, and you talked about automotive as well. Yeah, so, yeah I mean, absolutely. obviously, the parts industry is huge. But uh, this one is, is is a big, big topic. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get there. We'll get there. It's going to so, be a big fight. Yeah, you've mentioned the pain points, which is great. We've looked at what the problem was, which is, you know, just maintaining inventory is expensive and Mm -hmm. it's not a great business. And, you know, it's not something they want to be doing. So they want you to be doing that for them and somehow, right? You've talked about what we're doing here. So we're manufacturing spare parts, 3D printing. What's the solution itself? What, What is it that you're doing here that's sort of different to what else is out there at the moment? So basically, we are providing this as a service, uh, as a solution. So on-demand spare parts as a solution. Yeah. And uh, looking at the slides, yeah, we, we are basically doing um, this in three steps. One being helping the manufacturers start by anal- analyzing their catalog of spare parts and getting a due diligence on what can be done and how and how much can I save. So basically, when you have 100,000 parts, you can come and ask me, okay, Paul, how much do you, can you make this one yeah, for me? <laughs> right. How much can you, can, can you, can I buy it from you? I can give you a price, but 
that's not replicable to 10,000 10, or even 100,000 parts. So uh, doing this uh, due diligence on the entire catalog is, is something important so that you know how much you can go, uh, how far you can go on, on, on transferring your, your catalog to 3D, to, to uh, digital, sorry. And, uh, and then what's the value at stake, what's the opportunities that is behind mm. that. That's that's what first phase, basically, a uh, consulting phase, and that's kind of my background, actually. Um, second phase being um, doing the digital catalog itself. So you have to digitalize all that, uh, meaning that uh, we need to collect design data, so all the 2D drawings and the CAD models, mm -hmm. so the 3D format of the part. Mm -hmm. um, that's usually we get it quite easy with the manufacturers themselves, but then we need to do what we call technology transfer. So it has been produced by a technology. We need to do it with another technology, but it is, needs to be as good as the former one. Mm. So that's a technical assessment and a technical work and engineering work to be able to, to do this transfer of technology. And, um, and the last bit itself is being able to produce and to produce pretty much everywhere. Uh, because uh, when you are Electrolux, uh, you are selling in 120 countries mm. in the world. And uh, if you ask me what the first reason why you have shortages is uh, customs. Mm. Because you don't get the part of the right, uh, in the right country because of customs. He gets lost. And he gets lost or blocked or whatever. Thought, what is this thing coming through? It yeah. looks like it could be yeah. either a, a missile or uh, something uh, in a washing machine. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh, why, and something is not well filled on the form yeah. or whatever. So... Um, uh, we have to be able to produce locally so that mm. we can answer this this problematics in terms of shortages and so yeah. on. So that's the third bit where what we provide as a service is being uh, the distributed manufacturing itself, and we do this through uh, a network of suppliers that we qualify and for which we ensure the quality assurance, basically. Right. I don't understand enough about 3D printing, so yeah. help me out here. Is that is it as simple as sending a design to somebody who's got a 3D printer and then they can reproduce that so that, you know, that would overcome the issue in theory yeah. with Electrolux that you could have. If you had a printer yes. in every country, mm. you've dealt with the problem. Is that how it works? So in principle, yes. And right, that's a okay. bit the golden nugget of 3D printing. At the same time, it's like, um, for instance, the parts I've got here, you see that they are, all look a bit different. So mm. um, they are based on three main different technologies. Actually, 3D printing is a bunch of different technologies. Right. You have seven main big technologies that okay. are completely different processes. Uh -huh. I don't know. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, th you know, I guess the materials is an important part of this, no? Yeah, or is yeah. it you can just like shove any plastic mold and, you know, get the same kind of result, right? You need to know what kind of material Absolutely. goes into the, the plastic, so, yeah. you know. So, so that, that's, why, that's where it comes to complexity. So you have different technologies, different materials and different... Uh, couple technology and mm. materials because you don't do the process the same material with the same technology you have a lot right. of limitations so um so what you're saying is like and and a lot of people like uh, we 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 had a lot of 3d printing like five seven years back mm. uh, everyone everyone was uh thinking yeah we're all going to do this desktop printer we're going to have it at the house uh, at the house and we're going to produce this stuff uh, by ourselves yeah uh, in the end is just it's, it's very difficult to produce it Second is, uh, is there is a lot of limitation with this technology. Hmm. Um, and third is producing one part is simple. Producing one part to the technical specification of a manufacturer, yeah. meaning that it will withstand the temperature, uh, the chemical resistance that it needs to withstand or whatever kind of environment requirements that you have is, is a complexity in itself. Right. So you have actually a lot of work to be able to do this uh, this engineering uh, validation process, basically. Right. So do you have your own printers? 
No, uh, uh, yes, yes and no. So we have our, our own printers for everything that is related to R&D and part qualification. Mm -hmm. And then for the production, we we, we subtract. Right. Okay, gotcha. So you're not producing your hardware yourself no. for the you know, oh, mass no, production. No, no, you're no, only no. doing that for your own sort of research and due diligence. Yes, like absolutely. You said. Okay, yeah. good. All right, so let's have a look, if we may. If we go back into the pitch deck, I want to like forward to the part about... Um, yourselves and who you are you've mentioned alluded to your background yeah you're french obviously yes with an accent like that it could not be anything but french and you, you're from toulouse which is famous for we were just talking about off air for uh airbus airbus so yep. it's it, there's a lot of uh, heritage of aerospace engineering engineering mechanical engineering mm -hmm. toulouse yeah your background before this, what were you doing? So I'm a mechanical and industrial uh, engineer. Mm -hmm. So basically everything related to uh, designing components and producing components. Um, For any particular sector? Or? No. Uh, generalist, knowing that mm. um, that's my study background, but I've never worked as an engineer, actually. Right, okay. I, I went straight away for strategic consulting. So uh, I've been working for Oliver Wyman at first and then spin-off of Oliver mm. Wyman uh, in Paris working mainly in industrial uh, in the industrial context so a lot for Airbus actually yeah a lot for um, for the French railway company as well uh, so basically doing uh, not enduring work but um, uh, with companies that are very enduring savvy right. uh, reorganizations and uh, due diligence and uh, all the things that you do when you're a strategy consultant yeah so I, I I went quite away from engineering but at the same time I was uh, I was very keen on on, on keeping uh, keeping in touch and that's actually why I left uh, consulting to come back to something that is more related to my uh, my background and my interest because I am quite passionate about that do you consider yourself an engineer yeah you are okay. at heart yeah. With consulting experience. Yeah. Right. What, what does that do as to compared to a, so a pure engineer who just makes stuff? Uh, being much more business focused. Right. Yeah. So basically always trying to to know where, where the value comes from and what you are doing. Right. So Rather than just making it. <laughs> exactly. Because you want to make it, right? But at the end, I think my, my personal background is really, uh, yeah, it's really a mix of that. So... Uh, pushing a lot. I'm very, very uh, interesting. I was uh, uh, doing earlier technical due diligence on mm. on metallic parts for uh, for cranes. Okay. <laughs> Why did you choose that, or was that something that chose I, you? I had to do that. Oh, okay. You had to do it. Okay. <laughs> and uh, but at the same time, yeah, always pushing a lot uh, on on um, supporting, especially the customers, to um, to help them embrace the technology from uh, a business perspective. Yeah. So that's why we do all this stuff related to the due diligence and, uh, and the costing. And right. <laughs> and it also as well, I think it gives you a strength in being able to talk to engineers. Yep. Like, you know, you speak to a customer, mm. they have a need. And then often if you go back to an engineer and you say, this is what the customer wants, the if you know, the wrong kind of engineer can be hard to work with. Can't they? Mm. they can, oh, I don't want to do that for the customer. But you have to speak a language yep. that the engineer understands. Mm. And you can also understand whether the engineer is bs yeah, if they absolutely. come back and say well we can't do that because that's of right. this you I mean, understand that's, that, that's right it, 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 although it's not really my role i've got a partner that um, basically is my clone his, mm. his name is paul he has done the same background study background another paul? Another <laughs> paul. <laughs> but but he's a real engineer and he has worked on this uh, only right. as an engineer let's have a look at the team then so I'm, I'm really the guy that is uh, that is uh, more being um uh, in touch with the customer and yeah. and, uh, and actually what brings my my consulting background is uh, the know how to uh, 
work uh, with large B2B companies, yeah. sell in large B2B contexts and talk and, and, uh, and align with, uh, with senior management level. Yeah, to be able to sell what we to to be able to sell what we do because we we have to sell quite high level in the organization what we are yeah selling. and you have to know how that sales process yeah. works and how to speak their language literally at the large organizations. So I'm not so much the one doing the, the engineering talk and the, the the one that say yeah bullshit is the other pole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure he's gonna love hearing that. <laughs> All right, so um, are you French? As a team, your your board and your your founding team. Yeah, uh, yeah. So actually, the founding team is, is Paul and uh, Paul and, and myself. Yeah. So two Pauls. After that, I've got a team of uh, engineers and uh, a lot of them uh, from uh, from India actually. Okay. So are you based here in Singapore? Yeah. Okay. You. What is it just out of interest with French and engineering? Nothing. And I, I I thought when we were when I was in France that uh, we were recognized as good engineers and, yeah. uh, and coming in you know, so, uh, here everyone is telling me yeah good engineers uh, German engineers. <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but there's a different type of engineer. I, I mean know. Germans are famous for manufacturing, you know, like cars and and cookers and stuff like that. I think French are famous for more sort of infrastructure style engineering. It seems to be that's yeah. the reputation. Perhaps, perhaps. I just wondered if it's a certain mindset. What, what uh, honestly, what uh, what the thing with uh, French engineers is like? Uh, we have a very weird education system in France. I don't know if you know about it, but it's like extremely elitist. And yeah. uh, after high school, everyone goes for like two years of preparation, and then yeah. we all go to a contest uh, ah. with all the French uh, students. And there is really two ways to to get graduated for with the very very high level studies. Either you get an engineer degree, either you get a business degree. That's oh. why you have so many people getting engineering degrees that will not necessarily be real engineers later on, but doing project management or whatever right. uh, things. So they end up working for the large engineering companies. Exactly. The consultant, engineering oh, consultancies. Uh, yeah, but not only actually. But a very, very wide uh, yeah. range of, of, uh, of, I mean, people becoming very, very different. Uh, Interesting. Okay. Just so you have either you are, I mean, if you're not a doctor or lawyer, Everything has to go through this path. Either you become yeah, an engineer. Yeah, yeah. So you have plenty of guys that become engineers yeah. and do something else afterwards. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. I didn't realize that was why, but I was always curious as to why engineers, you know, came in numbers from France. So yeah. there you have it. One okay. Reason, yeah. yeah. Let's go back into the pitch deck. So talk, you looked a little bit at your team. Let's have a, a look at the timeline where we are in the business itself. So you started the business late 2015. Yes. Absolutely. So you know, three years old. Yeah. Okay. Um, you started the business, Paul and Paul. No, I actually started the business uh, by myself. By yourself. Paul as a, as an employee, and then became he came on as a co-founder. Yeah. Right. Okay. And how many people in the business now? Uh, seven. Seven. Yeah. In the two co-founders and five engineers in India. Uh, not uh, so. F four engineers, one business. Yeah. And uh, at the moment, it's one Chinese, three Indians. Right, okay. And they're based outside of Singapore? No, all based in all Singapore. Based all in based Singapore. in Singapore. And uh, pretty much all uh, with study background in Singapore. Okay, right. Gotcha. In, in, in some sense, I'm hiring locally. It's just uh, that you don't have any mechanical engineers that are Singaporean coming out of uh, Singapore University. Yeah, exactly. They are all either Indians or Chinese. They are very good, right. by the way. Yeah. There's just like 
you, you, I've tried, I've tried to, hard to hire engineers, Singaporean engineers, but you know, just not possible. Yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to the education system, doesn't it? It produces a certain type of person, and there doesn't seem to be a, a strong heritage of engineers here. Com by comparison, to so let's say India, you know, and yeah. China, where there are millions, Clearly. hundreds of millions. But I can tell you, a master's degree from NUS or NTU in mechanical engineers, you are forty percent Indian, forty percent Chinese, and right. the rest is the rest of the world. Yeah, pretty much from everywhere, and so you have maybe five percent of Singaporeans. Yeah. <laughs> from what I've seen. Exactly. So, I mean, you have been hiring here, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and it's a challenge. We'll talk about your hiring in a minute because it's an interesting challenge. I mean, mm. I'm a startup founder as well. Yeah, I, I face the, cha the challenges that you face, right? So, you know, getting the people, I think not necessarily just the fact that they're engineers, but also that they want to work in a startup. That's another perhaps, thing as well. Perhaps, yeah. So they need, often engineers go for more safer type roles, right? Unless you're like in Silicon Valley where, you know, you're an engineer, you walk into Facebook and so on, yeah. right? Mm. We'll talk about the... Um, the team and the the you know the growth of that in a minute. Mm -hmm. I want to have a look at a case study, if we may, so so people understand, because we did talk about it earlier, and I'm interested in the the automotive case study that you talked about. So if we can just sort of flick through through the the pitch deck on slide 22 here, automotive aftermarket. All right. So you're talking about long tail. This is a key part of it, long tail, isn't it? Which yeah. is that, you know, you may have like one part order, ordered by one customer. That's real long tail, isn't yes. it? You just can't service that, mm -hmm. you know, in any effective way normally. What, what have you found with automotive? What kind of things are interesting in, in your market in terms of the, the spare parts? I mean, in, uh, in automotive, I'm just starting first and especially working on Malaysia market because they have quite a huge uh, auto sector. Um, we, we, I mean, we find the same thing as, as with uh, home appliance sector and pretty mm -hmm. much with the rest is long tails is really a huge problem. And uh, and it happens the same way everywhere. So it represents mostly most of the, pro of, of the part that the, the manufacturer has. Um, yet, uh, I mean, automotive is, uh, is actually, uh, very, very competitive because the volumes are quite large. So even for the long tail, the volume are quite large mm -hmm. and they have quite common platform. Sorry, I would be a bit, uh, engineer, <laughs> a very qu quite common platform in terms of manufacturing system. Meaning, uh, when you produce a car, for instance, uh, for, uh, you have a big conglomerate when, the, when you produce a car that is a BMW, you have a lot of commonalities on the part you are producing for the key components mm. uh, with, uh, the Audi, with the, uh, with the Volkswagen and with the Seat because they're all using the same yeah. manufacturing platform and they have commonalized a lot of the engineering systems. Mm. So it's, um, it's a bit more tricky. You have less, uh, but you have still a lot of components and a lot of mixed, uh, a, a lot of different parts, different components that have a hard time to service. Mm. Um, it's, uh, it's good because usually about, Apart from Singapore, you keep the car for a while. Yeah, well, so that's the a longest case, right, the, yeah. your equipment is, is uh, you keep your equipment, the, the more difficult you get to to find part at the end. Right. So that for, especially so for vehicles which have passed warranty or, or yeah. I mean, in in Singapore they get scrapped, right? In many mm. cases, but I mean, everywhere else in the world you use, yeah, <laughs> you just keep them and use them. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's crazy, but anyway, that's something different. But like you mentioned up there on back on the pitch deck, they've got the. Um, that titanium wheel, right? Titanium turbo wheel. Yeah. 3D printing versus traditional printing, just so we can understand. I'm going to read it off the pitch deck. Just correct me if I'm wrong here. Yeah. Um, you've got here 3D printing of a 
titanium turbo wheel is three days, whereas traditional is 25 days. Yeah. So oh. basically, that's, that's an example of a metal part that uh, conventional manufacturing, it's casted. Or this one, uh, it's written CNC, but usually the wheels like this is casted. What's CNC mean? I don't CNC, know. sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're not engineers sitting around this table. Uh, CNC means machining with a milling machine. Okay. And uh, so casting is basically a foundry process. Right, so they would actually take the... You have to have a sand mold and then yeah. you pour your metal and so on. Okay. Uh, they just grind it down effectively so, into so the so shape. That, yeah. That's machining, that's yeah. CNC, yeah, you grind it down. And uh, so machining actually is quite fast, but uh, usually it's a problem of getting the raw, mater the raw material, so the block itself. Yeah. And the block of aluminium is uh, is not something that you find uh, right, it's quite wasteful <laughs> at, the corner, well, at right? the corner of the street. Yeah, yeah it's quite wasteful. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's why it takes a lot. Of, it takes quite some time. Mm. And um, same for if you if you were a, a castile. So actually, the two other examples are, are similar. So it's more. Uh, when you are going for the foundry process, you have first to do uh, uh, a first part that would be a model. Mm. Then you put your, you create your sand mold over it. So mm -hmm. you put it mm -hmm. in the sand mold uh, and you create, uh, you take off the, your part, you, you open your mold in two, you take off your part and then you, uh, and then you will cast the, your, your metal, which is really a long process to, to, mm. to manage. So usually the, what we see is that there are a lot of issues related to the long, to long lead time in production for metal that come from casting mm. and uh, and yes the the good thing about 3d printing is it's pretty much in and out from the printer right so I mean, you, can, you can shorten a lot can you 3d print metal yeah so oh, i don't well. have i don't have here but uh, right i know it sounds like a stupid question but i just wondered no, 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 that's that's a very good point it's uh because most of the people think it's only plastic yeah but you have uh you you, you can print metal and and there are more and more applications right but just uh and and everyone are always asking about uh but yeah, but is, is it uh, is it good quality? Or right. How does it work? And uh, just uh, always my answer is uh, you don't know about it, but uh, in G uh, engines, uh, uh, sorry, aircraft reactors, you have part key components of the of the reactors that are 3D printed. Right. So they must be good. <laughs> it has well, to be good. Assuming that they must <laughs> be good must, on, yeah. on the basis of the fact that they use them in aircraft, right? Yeah. Okay, good. And the cost-wise, they I mean, the four hundred dollars was that for the 3D printed? Yeah, that's for the first. And what would it compare to? Um, pretty much now a bit cheaper. Okay. Uh, it would be normally cheaper for the traditional right. steel. And the point here is about time. Time. And also yeah. inventory, isn't it? Yes. Because the guy who, like you say, they've got to do that crazy sand mold type process. Mm. You know, if he's going to just keep one of these. Oh, so do normally when you do sand mold, you're going to do 10 in yeah. a row. You don't have, you don't just do one. Right. And, uh, that, that's, that's terrible. And, and you have to store it somewhere. And then, and then you have to store yeah. it. So even though uh, when you do 10, you 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 will uh, save on manpower and so on. You yeah. probably get the part for, instead of 400, you get for 150. But you're going to keep the, the, the nine hoses for how long? You don't know. And yeah. Sometimes you just end up being scrapping the, the Or they the could all go next or, week. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> you exactly. Don't, you it's, don't really know. It's random. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. And um, so obviously all of this costs money. You're raising funds at the moment. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about um, where you are in terms of, we go back to your journey here mm -hmm. as a business. Yeah, to the timeline, yeah. Yeah. If we can have a look at the timeline, if we flick that back up, that's up here on page three how, how have you funded it up until now and uh, then what are you doing from now on so um, i started so late 2015 i actually started to get a team uh, with paul coming in beginning 2016 mm. and uh, got a first funding uh, by myself 
until by June. yourself means like friends and family no or? no I, I put myself oh, you're on, okay. yep. <laughs> on my own you are the friends and family yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh, till uh, that last uh, for about six months and yeah. I raised the seed round uh, mid 2016 for 200k euro everything is in euro <laughs> mm. so it's from uh, French investors for, uh, f- uh, European investors a lot oh. and then later it came quite a little, quite some uh, Asian investors as well lately. Mm-hmm. um so that was till the, so that was basically mid 2016 and uh, and I, I that was the first part of the seed and I, um, I actually that was my seed round that I kept small because basically at that time honestly we don't really we didn't really know what was our business case we mm-hmm. didn't really know what was our uh, how we're gonna make money out of it even though in principle is key is clear but seriously I, yeah. I didn't know how to sell what to sell to women so. It was a bit, uh, a bit difficult, and um, so we did started to bridge, uh, to create a kind of bridge ranch uh, mid uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. That I got uh, running since then. So I keep it uh, on a rolling basis, and I got another 200k euros uh, since uh, 2000, uh, since mid 2017 till now, and actually still running this round. But I'm gonna close it in uh, November this year, actually. Mm-hmm. As I'm going through a, a, a crowdfunding process. Crowdfunding? Yes. Is it equity crowdfunding? Equity crowdfunding what, process. Are you, what platform are you using for that? So not Singaporean platform, right. but uh, yeah, an, Eng- an English platform called Cedrus. Right, yeah, I know. Which is one of, uh, yeah. was a well-known one. Yeah. And uh, so I'm going to run this campaign both in England, France, and Singapore as right. well with the, for the networks that I've got and... Uh, but they can't invest in Singapore. They have to invest on. In it, it will UK. be in. A, it would be in France. Yeah. Right. Okay, it would be in right. France. Although, actually, um, I still have an entity in Singapore, and eventually, I can, I can get some investors to come in there. Yeah. And on board in Singapore, they won't care. Right. Yeah. Sure. I as mean, long as I've got an entity in in Europe to to run the exactly. to run the process, I still can get investors, and I already did get some investors that will be part of this round that are in Singapore and that invested in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So it's quite flexible in a sense. So what are you raising on the platform? So about 200K. Right. Yeah. Okay. And um, interesting about, why, why did you choose equity crowdfunding as opposed to going to angels or early stage in VCs? To me, it's, it's exactly the same as going for angels. It's just creating a, a pace to close around. Yeah. Just because I we are two founders, one is operational. I'm doing the business development. Honestly, I, I don't spend much time in funding, mm. which I, I from experience I've seen a lot of my friends uh, funding companies. It's like you have to spend at least fifty percent of your time. Oh more, yeah, and if, the if rest. not more yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to fund, and uh, which is most of the time not possible. I think I've spent maybe ten percent of my time funding the company yeah. since the beginning, and um, and right now I'm saying okay, I, I need to. Just close around and stop, stop, uh, stop this brain for a while, and uh, that's why I'm. I'm just creating to me a, a, a timeline to close around, yeah, and creating a momentum through the through the funding process. Do you, that's do you think, really main this topic. Yeah. I, I, I actually will bring most of the investors coming in by my by my network and mm. by the by all the angels that I know, but it will be just getting a pace and getting a it's the process, a process it? itself, yeah. yeah okay that's, that's what i'm interested in do you think that works well for um you know physical goods and sort of engineering type projects in equity crowdfunding it seems to be there's a lot more of those on i wonder what the issue you know why that is sort of attractive to them so i've 
I've uh, I've looked at that like last year, and I I was seeing a lot of B two C products, and uh -huh. mostly B two C products. And lately, like over the last six months, I've seen that there have been more and more B two B products mm. or B two B two C eventually. But mainly, I uh, I find that there are I mean the interest onto Non, not necessarily some goods that you get on your hand at the end of the process mm. is, is coming because of people are looking at at investing, not necessarily getting a crowdfunding uh, uh, campaign. Mm. And um, so I, f I find it interesting. My, the, I, I've, I've done a little bit of due diligence over the last two months to prepare that and uh, find that basically you still have to have a product that is... Uh, giving people a, a, a vision of something that is impactful for them. Mm. So basically to me, I guess, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm, I mean, most of my thing uh, around my, my, uh, my investment is, is around uh, home appliance because basically that's the business we know, the business we want to scale, even though we are doing uh, other kind of industry at the moment. But it's uh, it's really because everyone recognizes himself. Yeah, <laughs> we all use everyone them. has yeah. a problem with uh, the remote control with the uh, with the <laughs> the stuff that is yeah. supposed to to close the the, uh, the batteries. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, it, uh, it falls <laughs> off the back. And you, <laughs> and you put a tape or whatever. Uh, that's everyone has a story like this. So yeah. you relate to it. I think that that's one of the key important mm. thing when you are going for crowdfunding. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, and and uh, the the other takeaway I've got, please share, is basically um, uh, consider that uh, the platform itself is not bringing you investment. Mm. It's bringing you a methodology to create a funnel for your your network, your company network, to bring in investors. Yeah. So if you don't have the investors in your network, right, you you have less chance to su succeed. The guy will top up with maybe twenty. I, I'll say my my evaluation is uh, twenty to forty percent or fifty percent of the of the investment, not more. Right. It does. Is that because uh, obviously you know there are people you might think, for example, Seed Us or any of those other platforms have these ready-made investors just waiting to pounce on opportunities. That may be at the beginning, but that's now gone away. What you're saying is you have to use it for your own network. So is that is that because it it gives them an easier entry point? You know they can come in at a lower level or a smaller level than I think you know. so. Okay. I think so. That, that's one of the reasons. Second reason is again the momentum of, of the yeah. fundraising. Fundraising is a sales process. You have to exactly to put people it's a movement. into. Yeah, they're missing out. The yeah. train's leaving the station. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And when you are doing that on a, I mean, all the time and just yeah, you don't have this um, this this uh, this closing date or this uh, this uh, this final date on it you, on on which you need to put to put or not. Basically. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, good. And lastly, about your team. Now, you're a startup founder, and I've stopped asking startup founders coming here, are you recruiting? Because every single startup is recruiting. Okay. It's just an ongoing process, so I'm not going to ask you. I mean, you know, you're obviously raising funds. You want to get new talent on in the future. What kind of people would you be interested in being part of your team? Are you looking for particular skills? Are you looking for, you know, geographies, backgrounds? What's <clears throat> interesting to you? Uh, pretty much the next things I'm gonna, uh, the next profiles I'm gonna hire will be um, business development, uh, but in Europe, right? <laughs> Not yep. in Singapore, and um, and a developer full time as well. Right. And what do they have to bring to the table? Is it sort of ten years of selling to white goods manufacturers or? Not necessarily. Uh, I think a lot of uh, motivation is uh, is the first factor. Yeah. I mean, 
I think everyone is saying it. Uh, you don't really get people based on their skills, but mostly on their on attitude. Yeah. Attitude what is you? What are you looking for? Because you know, if I was pitching to you, yeah, I'm going to work all these hours, and I'm an entrepreneur. But is there something that tells you that that person is the right fit for spare parts? Uh, I don't know. I've I think I've got kind of a bias because uh, I've hired a lot of people for strategic consultancy. Yeah. I've made a lot, a lot of uh, interviews and uh, for this kind of roles, and I, I know what what I'm looking for in terms of uh, of attitudes. And I think it's uh, um, what I'm looking for is basically it's also how the people are. What is the the the, the thinking process of the people and mm. the way they be behave when they interact. Which are not, you know what I mean. It's not. Yeah. Uh, what, it's it's extremely fit-based. It's not. Yeah. It's not really about the competence itself. Yeah. So what is that? Um, uh, I I need to have people that are extremely structured in the way they think and the way they organize things, simply because I I delegate a lot and I don't follow up on my delegate on right. what I delegate. You want to know it's being looked after. Exactly. So I don't. I w I want to have only people that are, that are extremely autonomous, mm. and means that it doesn't mean that they don't they want to work uh, alone. It means that I g I throw at them ten stuff at the same time, and they will juggle with it, and they will come back with an organized area to uh, to 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 attack the agenda. Right. Yeah. So that's one one key thing for me, and it's really depending on how I want to manage people. And mm. I, I don't want to be uh, looking after uh, no. my team. So. Yeah. Um, that's really one of the things. Second is uh, is being, uh, and that's again my, uh, one of my biases, uh, being a super rational uh, <laughs> person. But that's so uh, again uh, something that I'm looking for. But for instance, for a business developer, that will not be uh, that will not be what I'm looking for. Okay. For a business developer, it will be someone that is a no shame. You know right. What I mean? <laughs> not afraid of rejection. Not afraid of rejection, and it's also um, not an introvert. Uh, being really an extrovert, that the kind of guy that just spend his time. Um, in the thinking process, you, I, 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 I differentiate uh, introvert and extrovert being uh, on the thinking process. Introvert, you think, then you exchange, and then yeah. you think again. An extrovert will be exchanging, thinking, yeah. and then exchanging again. And that's really what you need to be able to be at ease and connecting with a lot of people without overthinking everything. So that's, to me, the key uh, attitude of, uh, of guys that will be selling because he needs to be pleased to connect and pleased to, to talk to mm -hmm. people. And of course, very, very motivated because uh, that's a tough, uh, <laughs> very tough job. Yeah, you want them out of the office. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, what are you doing in the office? You need to be out there mm -hmm. knocking on the doors and going and speaking to this manufacturer and so on. But most of them, uh, so what I've described is mostly for my team of uh, engineers, but even the guy that, I, that is doing marketing communication to mm. me, it's... Uh, it's um, it's a back office job, and to and and being organized is mostly what will drive efficiency on the job. Okay, good. Well, Paul, you've given up some secrets as to the kind of people you're looking for, which is great. I mean, because people listen to this, they know mm -hmm. what you're looking for and whether or not they connect with you, and they can just get a feel for you know you as a man and the business itself and what you're trying to do and your mission, mm -hmm. and that then either connects with them or it doesn't, and people will like you know think that is the company that I want to work for. That's the man that I want to be, you know, in the same team as. What would be the most effective way to reach out to you? Do you have a preferred channel? Emails. Emails. Yeah. I will put all the details in the show notes. <laughs> there you go. Fantastic. Paul Guillermo. 
Yes. It's been a pleasure sharing this journey with you. Spare Parts 3D. We'll put all the details in the show notes. We wish you all the best with your equity crowdfunding. Thank you very much. Uh, we'd love you to come back on in the future as well and give us a before and after. Yeah. So tell, tell us where you are with after the raise, mm-hmm. you know, and what you learned from that crowdfunding process. Um, what, you know, your, your business is going to evolve, right, as mm-hmm. it has done. So we would love to get an update at some point. Sure. So. I would be pleased to, yeah. I uh, definitely, I think it's always better to to get a, as after exactly <laughs> see all the all the shit that happened in the process. That, that is that is the entrepreneur's that's, life. That's, that's exactly. much, much we're, <laughs> we're guaranteed to have a lot of shit between now and the next time of that course. we speak. But then that's what we signed up for, being entrepreneurs. Definitely, right? yeah. Great, Paul Guillermo. Thank you for so much. Thanks a lot.